You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. All right. It's my honor and my privilege tonight to uh, invite Sister Larissa to, to preach the Word of God. Amen. Uh, just such an awesome young, young lady, young woman of God. Uh, she's studying at Urshan uh, Graduate School of Theology, finishing up, uh, finishing working on her graduate degree. And she's just been such a blessing to CTK in her time here uh, as our youth pastor. And so we're just going to open up our open up our hearts and our minds to the Word of God. Amen. Why don't you stand as she comes and just give her a big welcome tonight. Wow, so much welcome. <laughs> you may be seated. Um, I'm not going to take a text tonight because pastor asked me to teach, so teach I shall. Um, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, just kidding, the book of Esther. <laughs> the book of Esther will start out in um, chapter 1. And verse 1, and tonight we're just going to kind of move chronologically um, through the plot of the book, and then we'll bring it together at the end. Martin Luther was a complicated character in history. He was a little edgy. Um, important reformer, though. He did some good stuff. But he disputed uh, the, the place of Esther in the Bible. He stated that he wished it did not exist at all because it was spoiled by too much Judaizing and too much pagan impropriety. <laughs> so pe different people throughout history have not really known um, what to do with Esther. It's a unique book in many ways. Um, some people love it. Some people just don't really know how to handle it. Um, but I believe that the book of Esther was written so that we would have confidence in God. And so if we could see tonight what the Lord is trying to speak um, to us through Esther, I believe that we will be blessed. This um, is the book of Purim. So there are, you may be dismissed, you're just like, I'm going to keep playing as long as I can. So there's five books in the Old Testament that correspond to Jewish feasts. And Esther is one of them. And this is actually in the narrative of Esther itself. So if you go to Esther, the very end, um, chapter 9, it talks about Purim. It is a festival that the Jews celebrate. It's two days long. So that's kind of the reason that Esther exists. And there's a lot of banqueting in the book. So that's kind of how the plot moves forward is that there's banquets, there's parties. Um, and then there's a party in Jewish tradition to celebrate Purim. Where are we in history? Esther is post-exile, after the exile, right? So the southern kingdom, Judah, is brought into exile by Babylon. They're in exile for 70 years. And then 2 Chronicles um, ends with Cyrus releasing Jews to go back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the temple. But not all of the Jews go back to Jerusalem. Some of them stay spread out in the diaspora. So Esther and Mordecai, her family, are those Jews that are still situated 
in Persia. They're subject to Persian rule. Um, I don't know why they didn't go back to Jerusalem. It was war-torn. It didn't have its former glory at this point. Um, but this is a group of Jewish people that are in Persia under Persian rule. Now, it begins, now it came to pass, in the days of Ahasuerus. That is a name that just, like, gets stuck in your teeth. <laughs> and if you've heard retellings of the story of Esther, you've probably heard this king referred to by his Greek name, Xerxes. Um, he ruled from 46 to 465, and the Greek historian Herodotus described him as a capricious ruler with a wandering eye for women. Amen? <laughs> so that's the kind of world that we are dealing with. Um, we're going to just jump right in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is that Ahasuerus which reigned from India even to Ethiopia. Over 107 and 20 provinces. 127. Okay. <laughs> that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he hasn't had time to accomplish very much. But he made a feast to all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred and fourscore or a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast to all the people that were present in Shushan, the palace, both to great and small, just the common people this time. Seven days in the court of the garden of the palace. It goes on to describe the grandeur of the palace. Right off the bat, we see that this is someone who's pretty self-consumed, right? He's only been ruling three years, but he's bringing in all these important dignitaries. Look at my glory. Look at my 127 provinces. Look at all that I have accomplished in three years. Um, and he holds a great feast with a lot of drinking. You know the story, probably. Esther chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ab Abagtha, hallelujah, Zathar, Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus, the king, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. And the queen Vashti said, I'm summarizing, gross, no. Now, <laughs> we've just read that he has been celebrating his many provinces in his really, really nice palace for 187 days. I don't think that this is someone who hears the word no <laughs> very often. <laughs> his anger burned in him. I just imagine, like, she said what? He said, what? Smoke, just out his ears, right? So he said to the wise men, boy, that's an irony, who knew the times, um, and they just give him some, you know, wisdom. Why don't you put away Vashti? You can just see the fabric of our society <laughs> just unraveling before your eyes. No one is going to respect their husband if Vashti doesn't. And so, in verse 20, the king's decree 
um, which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. So the great husbands are getting honor and the not so great husbands are getting honor. And I don't know how you're supposed to enforce this law, but good luck. There is so, right? There's so many levels of irony here, right? Because he's throwing this grand party to demonstrate what a great king he is. Just picture him on his throne. The crown's a little too big. It's kind of, you know, falling off. <laughs> and he's sloppy drunk. And everyone's here to see how great he is. And then his wife shames him in front of all the foreigners. This is not good news. Okay, so his counselors give him some wisdom to put Vashti away. So after things had died down, chapter 2, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, what was decreed against her. So the servants and the ministers advise him some more. Why don't you just gather all the young, beautiful virgins in the kingdom? And you can just pick of your choice. People have debated how much volition um, Esther had in this moment. And this isn't a modern society, so they're not thinking about independence choice <laughs> like we are today. Um, but I don't think that this is the kind of life that a virtuous Jewish <laughs> young woman imagines <laughs> for herself, right? And different depictions of the story of Esther have tried to romanticize it to make it look a little bit nicer, to make it look kind of sweet even. Um, Veggie Tales makes a Hazuerus look like a really uh, nice cucumber. <laughs> um, but in the Bible, um, not so, right? This is someone who's power hungry. He's powerful. He can just do what he wants. So gather all the young women. Um, he has his night with each of them, and then they're sent off to the harem. They're marinated in cosmetics for like a year, okay? This is a pretty grotesque situation, which might be one reason why people don't know what to do with Esther. How do we deal with that? This is a kind of ridiculous king. Who really is king here? The king or his counselors? But there was in the palace a certain Jew, chapter 2, verse 5, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful. The repetition is on purpose. She was beautiful and she was beautiful. Whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Mordecai has a very um, Persian name. His name possibly relates to the idols of Persia, Marduk being one. And then Esther has a Persian name as well. Her Jewish name is briefly mentioned. But there is a sense of assimilation, a loss of Jewish identity, a loss of heritage and history. This is 
personally in the life of Esther, right? She's lost her father and mother. And I think that Esther meant a lot to Mordecai because the narrative repeatedly emphasizes that she is like his own daughter. Maybe in her face, he saw lost loved ones, the past, the future, hope, possibility. So she is brought into the king's palace. And Mordecai, verse 11, walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what would become of her. It sounds like a heartbroken father to me. But is God at work? It would seem so. She's chosen, verse 17, the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So he makes another great feast. We've got that feasting motif again. And Mordecai is at the king's gate. Esther has concealed her Jewish identity. Mordecai is at the king's gate, and he just so happens to hear that there is a plot for assassination against the king. In those days when Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door were angry and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. So Mordecai reports it to Esther. There's an inquisition made. It's written in the book of Chronicles. Unrewarded merit, right? He does the right thing. It's written down, but it seems like no one notices. And five years pass. Sometimes we read the Bible, and we don't really see how much time is passing between chapters. But if you notice, the book of Esther is very intentional to point out what is happening when. Five years pass. And after these things, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman? He was an Agagite. So if anyone remembers the story of Saul, there's one king that Saul does not kill, and the Lord gets very angry. That king is Agag. So he's of Canaanite descent. Saul doesn't do what the Lord tells him to do. So now the enemy of God's people is back in a new face. He's an Agagite, and he's here to torment God's people. We're bringing closure to this story that was unfinished. So all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed, they reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Mordecai had unrewarded merit, and then Haman has unmerited reward. Why is he so popular? Maybe because he's rich. Um, Mordecai does not bow down to him. This makes Haman very angry. So Haman goes to King Ahasuerus and says, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws are different than ours. So it's not profitable for you to allow them to prosper. He makes a bribe to the king, verse 9. He says, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. That's a lot of silver. But the king is so disgustingly rich. He's just like blowing his nose on dollar bills. He says, you keep it. Um, do what you need to do. So he gives him his ring and he gives Haman license to carry out this mass execution upon the Jews. And what did they do? They feast. 
Um, <laughs> so Mordecai perceived, chapter 4, verse 1, all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes. He went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. He's on the outskirts once again. And this time, Esther sends an intermediate to go check on Mordecai and see what's going on. And Mordecai tells her. He even shows her a copy of the decree. Tell her what's happening. Haman has plotted to kill the Jews. He will stop at nothing. He doesn't care about the cost. He will give copious amounts of silver to kill us all. In verse 11, Esther spoke to Mordecai and said, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know it's a royal law that if anyone comes into the king's inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Esther is neglected. She too is in a hopeless waiting place. They told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, think not with yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. He's almost correcting her. This sounds like, I don't, this sounds like my dad when he means business. <laughs> um, don't think that you're going to escape. You're not special. Someone will find out. For if you all together hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He implies that God will intervene, um, but it's very ambiguous. Who knows? Maybe God will. He doesn't actually even say God's name. And I wonder in this moment if Esther remembered stories that were told to her in Mordecai's house. Maybe the story of Joseph, a foreigner brought into a king's palace against his will doesn't really know how to act in this situation, has to make brave and controversial decision, but the Lord favors him, right? And so maybe after many nights of frustration in a jail cell, at the end of his life, he's able to look at his brothers and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and the saving of many lives. Or maybe she remembered the pretty recent story of Daniel. Maybe it had been whispered to her somehow about there was, a, there was a young man. He too was a foreigner. He was in a king's palace. He was different. He was separated. He was forced to make a choice. He was forced to be faithful in the face of opposition. So Esther bid them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather all the Jews to fast three days. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. I will disobey the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
So the king, or sorry, Esther puts on her royal apparel. She fasts, but she's got to dress up now. And what does she do? She goes into the king's court. Um, He extends the royal scepter. And this king is really unpredictable. He's a little bit of a buffoon, right? We don't know how he's going to act. He's completely at the advice of other people. And sometimes, you know, Vashti disobeys him and he's like, okay, we'll expel her. Other times, you know, Esther comes in and he's like, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. Okay, an unpredictable character. But Esther just asks, well, I would like to throw a banquet and I would like Haman to be there. That's all I want. Um, And then, uh, so Haman goes forth in verse 19. That day with a joyful and a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up. Now this is some more irony for you, right? The first time Haman's angry because he won't bow down. Now he's angry because Mordecai won't stand up. So (laughs) standing, sitting, bowing, there's nothing that you can do (laughs) to please Haman, (laughs) right? He was full of indignation against Mordecai. He goes home and he tells his friends and his wife, Zeresh, what has happened. He says, the queen has favored me. She's invited me to this banquet, but there is this Jew, Mordecai, who will not show me honor. Um, And he's just irking me. Now, this is a man after his own king's heart, right? The king gets frustrated, upset. His pride is wounded. So he goes to his counselors, and his counselors just try to pacify the angry child. Haman's doing this all over again, right? His pride is wounded. He's angry. He's irrational. So he goes to his wife and his friends, and they're like, make a gallows 50 cubits high, I don't know why the gallows could not work at 10 cubits, but this is a very angry man. (laughs) It's a bit excessive. So the thing pleased Haman. He caused the gallows to be made. And on that night, could not the king sleep? So he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before him. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Bichthana and Teresh, Two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor and dignity has been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, there is nothing done for him. And here we come to the great reversal. The king is distraught that there has been no honor given to Mordecai, the man who saved the king's life. So Haman's coming in. He's all fired up and proud. There's a gallows being constructed. His rage, his temper, it's just on a high. And he is feeling really good about himself. And he comes in and the king says, what should be done? to honor this man to whom, and Haman thinks, well, he's trying to honor someone, surely he's talking about me. And so he imagines his dream of what it would be like to be perfectly honored, to wear the king's garments. 
to be to be carried throughout the city and pro, all his praises proclaimed to the people this is the man that the king delights to honor i wonder if in haman's heart he was just thinking man i'd look really good in a crown i'd look really good in a robe i'm getting really close to the king it's all panning out an irony of ironies The king said to Haman, hurry up and take the apparel and the horse as you have said and do even so to Mordecai, the Jew, that sits at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that you have spoken. Oh, man. So Haman took this apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, this like hits hard for us. We read it and we laugh, but this hits even harder in an honor-shame society, okay? So in ancient cultures, honor is everything. Okay, honor is probably the most important value that someone could have. In this moment, Mordecai is being honored by his oppressor, and Haman is being shamed. Just a few chapters ago, Mordecai was at the king's gate lamenting in sackcloth and ashes, but in verse 12, Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. The tables have suddenly turned. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, to him, if Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, if he's really a Jew, like you say he is, before whom you have begun to fall, you shall not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. These words being prophetic. While they were yet talking, with him came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So Haman came to banquet with Esther and the king. And the king said again to Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, Okay, this is a smart woman. This is the second day at the banquet of wine. (laughs) Okay, and we've got King Ahasuerus, who apparently likes that type of stuff. Um, And he's feeling really good, you know, second day at the banquet of wine. Queen Esther, whatever you desire, what shall be granted to you? Tell me what you really want. It shall be performed even up to half of the kingdom. And Haman's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) then we come to the serious moment. Esther, the queen answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. She pleads the case of the Jews before King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus answered, said to Esther, the queen, who is he and where is he that dare presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. He arising the king from the banquet of wine in his wrath went into the palace garden. He's so angry. He doesn't know what to do. Haman fallen, as prophesied, upon the bed where on Esther was. And the king walks in 
and it's just like worst possible moment to walk in on, right? Haman's like begging for his life at the feet of Esther. And the king walks back in in his drunken rage. You dare disrespect me in my own palace, trying to assault the queen in my presence. So Haman is executed on the gallows that he made for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. So we still have a problem because King Ahasuerus, at the beginning, he made one irreversible decree and then he was bound by his own law, right? So then he just had to create more problems (laughs) to solve the initial problem. And once again, he's bound by an irreversible law. He's bound by something of his own doing. But Mordecai advises the king. And this time he actually does give him wise counsel and suggests that the Jews be allowed to defend themselves against their enemies on this day. So in chapter 9 and verse 1, now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them for the fear of them fell on all the people. And then Mordecai is exalted. He becomes great in the king's house. He's honored, finally, um, as he deserves. The book of Esther is beautifully constructed. I won't, uh, I'll let you like search it out if you're interested. But the plot is what's called a chiasm. So there are the same events or similar things happening, and they come to a center point, right? So it begins with Ahasuerus being praised and exalted. It it begins in a way that you wouldn't think a book of the Bible would begin, right? It's praising this pagan king and how great he is. Um, And he's elevating um, Haman, but then it ends after this important reversal moment with Mordecai being elevated and praised. And there's more parallel moments. It's kind of beautiful to to see how intentionally God has inspired his word, that this story could have so much detail, not just on the surface, but as we read more deeply. Now, this story is supposed to explain the origin of this festival that they called Purim. Pur were the lots that Haman threw to decide what day the Jews would be executed on, okay? You might think of these as being similar to the Urim and the Thummim that were on the breastplate of the high priest. We think of um, like dice or casting lots, these things in in association with gambling today, right? Um, But back then, These people, they didn't have the Holy Ghost, okay? They didn't have the Spirit. They were just trying to seek divination in any way that they possibly could. And so in the ancient world, it was considered, and in the Bible, 
It was considered valid to seek counsel from God by casting lots, by casting the Urim or the Thummim or the poor. Now I've brought um, <laughs> our own modern version of poor and we won't be doing any gambling. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but if you think about, you know, I'm 23 and I like to think, you know, I can make good decisions, right? I can do good things. <laughs> I have some volition. I have some capability. But this tiny square, this tiny dice, I have no control over this, this small thing, right? Entire lives, fortunes, futures have been thrown away, hinged on a dice, on a poor. There's a game. Um, that I used to play whenever I was little <laughs> with my parents. And this might explain why I was a kind of serious child. But <laughs> that game was called Life. Has anyone ever played Life? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, I imagine that there was a board game board meeting. And the people at <laughs> this board game board meeting were like American families. They're just not that close anymore. How can we appeal to the American middle class? How can we entertain them? And someone, some silly person at the end of the table was like, imagine, boss, I know it sounds crazy, but a game where you have to play a mortgage. I think we can make big bucks, <laughs> all right? <laughs> so I brought some uh, different like plays cards from the game of life. The whole premise of the game, it's all um, made to imitate a standard life, right? And the idea is to get to the end of the game retirement first, <laughs> okay? And you might retire to a really nice millionaire mansion or just a kind of, you know, sad country hills retirement home. Um, and it's full of twists and turns. You might land on a certain spot and have to give the bank $100,000, okay? Or you might draw a card that says, you win a beautiful forehead contest. Collect $40,000 from the bank. I can't make these things up. Or a lawsuit. Sue another player for stealing your stapler. <laughs> or a teacher. Salary lower than the other salaries in the game. <laughs> you might get a promotion, your hard work paid off, or you might buy a ranch for $600,000. You might take a dream vacation. You might take the risky route or the safe route at the end. And it's a game I, I don't think I could play. I don't understand how people play life without the Holy Ghost, because it's just too existential. <laughs> it's just a little too heavy, right? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. So like, it's okay if we, you know, play this game, but <laughs> it's kind of this sick loop. <laughs> you know, you get home from work <laughs> where you're working to pay your rent, and then you sit down with your family to play a game where you're working to pay your rent. Like, oh, who wants to do that? 
We have a lot of different idioms or figures of speech to describe chance. You got the short end of the stick. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. It's the hand that you were dealt. Ancient people believed that whenever these lots were cast, God was guiding the way that the lots would fall. And we don't cast any lot, lots anymore. The last time they did that was in Acts chapter 1 <laughs> um, to replace Judas. But they believed that God was guiding these chance events. We today, at least most naturalists, most intellectual people, believe that eh, you, you cast the die. It's just chance. It's just a coincidence. And in our own lives, we can maybe evaluate our life next to somebody else's and think, I don't think that I was dealt a very fair hand. I, I think Esther probably felt that way after her mother, her father died. You know, after the exile, it's not looking too good <laughs> for her people. It's not looking too good for her personally. And she probably wondered, where is God? It's, it's out of my control. I can't control other people. I can't control the circumstances. And God is notoriously silent in the book of Esther. You can read it all the way through. There is not one direct mention of the Lord. Not a single one. Where is God in Esther? I don't know, but it's really unfortunate that Esther was beautiful and beautiful. I don't know where God was, but it's really fortunate that Esther was chosen. I don't even know that she wanted to be chosen. She was chosen by Ahasuerus. She was chosen by God. It's really unfortunate that Mordecai overheard the assassination plot. It's really, really, really fortunate that this assassination, this passing event was recorded. It's really fortunate that the king was in a pleasant mood when Esther approached him. It's really fortunate that the king had insomnia. And it's really, really, really fortunate that as Haman's henchmen built the gallows to kill Mordecai, that night, the scribe trying to soothe the king to sleep, reading him all his deeds, comes across the line written five years ago, in those days while Mordecai sat at the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, how fortunate is that? This is a very vulnerable time in Israel's history. They've come out of exile, but now they are controlled by the Persians. They're under Persian domination. Um, the Persian Empire lasted approximately 200 years, and then Alexander the Great came in and conquered, and we've got Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the Iron Fist. And we are entering in to 400 years of silence. What do we do with the silence of God? 
There are moments in our lives where we ask, who really is king? Who is sovereign in the universe? You can hear in the story of Esther echoes of the laments of the psalmist and the prophets. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be gracious no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut off his tender mercies? Pay attention, all-knowing God, because it seems like you've forgotten about me. We do with these portions of our lives where it seems like God is silent, what many people in history have done with the story of Esther. God is moving in incredible ways, but behind the scenes. And some people look at this book, and because God is so silent, think, ah, that's not really scripture. That's not really sacred. That's not really part of the story. But we know that all things work together for good. To those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul was dealing with a similar crisis of identity and faith. Jesus has come. He's brought redemption. The gospel has extended both to the Jew and the Gentile. But now what happens to the Jews? Has God forgotten about his chosen people? What's what's God's plan for my people? And then he comes to the conclusion that God is able to graft them in again. God has a plan In history, he is working, even though it doesn't make perfect sense in my eyes. What a coincidence. What we find when we read the book of Esther, that the things that seem to be coincidence are not coincidence at all. But every time a moment is left to chance, to chance, God is the one who is directing people. He's directing advisors. He's directing hearts. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He's molding him. He's setting him in a certain direction. Esther's life is in the hands of the Lord, even though her future is vulnerable. I wonder if we could stand. Sometimes God speaks to us in very blatant, obvious ways, right? Sometimes we experience the miraculous working of the Lord in ways that are easy to identify and easy to testify about. But sometimes we can only look back five years later and say, it was just in a a meeting that I thought was coincidence, a service that just seemed like another service. I heard a word and it didn't seem like it hit me at the time, but it rested in my heart. Just another interaction, just another moment in my life. God is working even when he is silent. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as the musicians come. God, there have been moments in our lives where we have doubted your presence, your providence, 
your provision because you worked in ways that we did not understand. But Lord, I pray that as we consider the story of Esther, God, and how you are working through her to save many lives, that we would take confidence and know that you are in control, God, that we can trust you with our lives. We can trust you with history. Oh God, you are doing a work that is so much bigger than us. God, we place our hope, our trust in you today. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, God. Your ways are higher than our ways. God, when we get to heaven and we look back on our lives, we're going to see so many moments of provision, oh God, that we were blinded to at the time, oh God. Only history will tell what you were truly doing when we were working, when we were waiting, God, when we were hurting, Jesus. I pray for any person in this room that's hurting, God, that feels far from you, God, that your voice seems so silent in their lives. God, I pray that you would just breathe a word of encouragement in their spirit tonight, oh God, that they would take hope and confidence, Lord, that they would know that you are for them. Lord, that your plans for us are good, that you have hope, you have a future, not just for us individually, God, but for us as a people. You are leading us to something greater than just a life shortly lived, than just a game of chance. But God, we have something beyond this world to look forward to. God, help us to live with heaven in view. In Jesus' name.